0: Would you pray with me one more time before we get started? Let's pray together. Father, even as we sang, it was the just for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. And we know, Lord, that the just for the unjust means that The righteous Jesus was put in place of the unrighteous sinner. And the for is everything. The for is the gospel. Because it is by His substitutionary death, it is by His vicarious atonement that we can stand forgiven, that we can stand redeemed, and that we can stand righteous in your sight. Today, Lord, we want to remember that, as Peter says, we are redeemed not with perishable things like silver, gold. We were redeemed out of the futile ways of life that we inherited from our fathers, We were redeemed not with silver, with gold, but with the precious blood that Jesus offered. We were redeemed by the Lamb that is unblemished, that is spotless, blameless, sinless. And we were redeemed... By the blood of Christ so that being redeemed, we would be liberated. And yet, Lord, so many people, so many even in this church, if we search our hearts, we are not living as redeemed people. We are not living as if we have been delivered from these futile ways, but too often, O oh God, we find ourselves going back to those futile ways. We find ourselves living as unredeemed people because, Lord, and we confess before you today, Lord, that if we truly believe in our redemption, Which means we have been bought, we have been purchased, we have been taken out of something and put into something else. Oh Lord, then we would see that we have been sprung free from our prison. We have been delivered from the realm and the dominion of darkness. And so, Lord, I pray today with renewed commitment, with renewed zeal, with renewed repentance in our heart, with renewed conviction, that we would recognize that we are not darkness, but we are light in the Lord. And may that light illuminate and flood our lives so that we live in the light where you are, in the light. Help us, O God. Encourage us, O Lord. Rebuke us if you must. Correct us like a father to a child. Chastise us until we come back to the joy of our salvation. We plead your mercy, O Lord. We ask for your grace, the grace that we have available to us in Jesus Christ. in in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start today by doing a quick biblical theology of light and darkness. So if you would, rapid fire with your hands. Genesis chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says, not in Genesis, but if we look at what he says here in Thessalonians, he says, you know, We are not darkness. Or brethren, you are not darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. So we are not darkness. We're not in darkness. We're not of darkness. We are not darkness. And yet, we understand that that language of darkness and light, darkness and light, has a really rich theological tradition. It began right here in Genesis In Genesis chapter 1, you remember, that is where God separated the light and the darkness to teach us something as we go from the realm of natural theology and into the realm of supernatural theology or revelation. As we go from the Ordo Historia, which is the history of redemption, and we go to the Ordo Salutis, which is the order of redemption, we see a perfect analogy. That God in the beginning through a powerful fiat, a covenant word of absolute sovereign authority as the King of Heaven spoke. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and here it is, darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Then it goes on to say, God saw the light was good and He separated the light from the darkness. That's critical. Light and darkness should not, cannot mix. Um... I'm not a scientist, but you cannot have darkness and light at the same time, in the same place, and in the same way. There's a distinction. That's what light does. It dispels the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness He called night, there was evening, there was morning, and one day. Now, the closest parallel to this passage will come Thousands of years later. Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, the New Testament picks up this creation motif. And he brings it home into messianic Christological implications. And shows us what was at work there in the original creation. Was more than just some sort of arbitrary act on God's part. This was a triune affair. And we see that here. Matter of fact, if you were a Gentile reading the Old Testament, somebody would hand you a Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, and you would begin to read Genesis chapter 1 the same way that you would begin to read John chapter 1. In other words, they start with the exact same words. So that you can see the symmetry. In the beginning, right? Uh, Which in Hebrew would be Bereshit Barah Elohim. But in Greek it would be NRK. It's amazing. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, i.e. Genesis chapter 1. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2. Nothing that happened in Genesis chapter 1 happened without Him. Without Him. So now when you go back and read Genesis chapter 1, you better be reading it with Him. Because John just told us nothing happened without Him. In Him was life. Circle that. Underline that. Meditate on that. Chew on that. Do a devotional on that. Uh, Extract every ounce of the riches of the glory of Christ out of that. Because, as Paul tells us, He is our life. Because in Him was life. And the life was the light of man. Now watch this. And the light shines in the darkness. What? Over the face of the deep? No, no, no. Not anymore. Now... The author of Scripture under the same inspired Spirit of God is thinking of a different deep, a different darkness. And it's no longer the the darkness that resides over the the, the murky waters of the deep. Now it is the darkness that resides over the murky waters of our hearts. And in this world, the light shines in the darkness and, and this is a very important and controversial phrase, the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, the reason why it's important is because the word comprehend, I don't know what your translation says, my translation says comprehend, but if you have a different translation, it might render it overpower, overtake, or overcome. It did not overcome the light. Two possibilities here. One is stressing the epistemological darkness Of the world and sin, that it didn't have the ability to comprehend the light without the necessary illumination. But probably a better translation would be that the darkness did not overpower, did not overtake. In other words, could not stop the light from coming. And that is metaphorical of Jesus broke into this world, and in doing so, there was a heavenly intrusion into this world that the darkness of this world could not stop. I like that one. It sounds better, right? I like it better. But, when you gather all this around uh, together, probably the most crystallized theology, you got your hand on the trigger, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, the author of Scripture this time, a different authors. Now we have three authors. You have Moses, you have John, and now you have Paul. And they all sort of share this motif of creation and light for various reasons. In Genesis chapter 2, it was to sort of lay the framework, almost like the archetype of what would come, redemptively speaking. And, And in John, he picks up that framework and he applies it messianically so that we understand that that original creation was to lead us to the Creator Christ... And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul makes it crystal clear that creation is also analogous to redemption. Look at what he says. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Well, what does that remind you of? Genesis chapter 1. We just read it, right? He is the one who has shown in our hearts. See the connection there now? The analogy, how that works? We kind of, in a sense, we've gone from one realm, one reality, metaphysical reality to another. Now we're thinking specifically of the individual person, the heart. He has shown in our hearts. And just like he spoke light into this Dark creation, it says, To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If the light in the first day of creation was called good, how good is the light that is shown in the second creation, the new creation of the heart through regeneration. Through the new birth. It is exceedingly good. It is the light of salvation, brothers and sisters. It is the light that transfers us out of the darkness of this world, out of the darkness of our own sin, and to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, this light, this knowledge. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. I just had to read that verse. God demonstrated in the physical realm how light and darkness are incompatible. To show us in the spiritual realm and really honestly as we're going to see in this text in the practical realm of our lives. How light and darkness morally speaking are to constantly be at odds with one another. That's where he's going. Look at John chapter 12. Jesus brought in another metaphor to this whole equation, and it was very practical. He told his disciples to walk in the light, to walk in the light. So now we've gone out of the realm of the abstract idea of all these motifs and metaphors and analogies and all of these things down to the very grassroots of our lives, our daily life, 24-7, how it applies. And Jesus says for a little while longer, the light is among you. It's just amazing. I was trying to exegete this passage. There is so much going on here. I'm never going to get out of here. I better not do any commentary whatsoever in my notes. (laughs) Because there's too much going on here. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. And what he's talking about there is the messianic visitation, the light that dawned. The same thing Isaiah talked about, that, the, that, that those who sit in darkness have seen a great light, right? The dawning of redemptive light, salvific light that comes with Christ and His kingdom. When you see it, in other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples, when it is among you, when it is upon you, walk in it. Be productive in it. Don't sleep while the light is with you. Take advantage of the light so the darkness does not overtake you. He says, he who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. See the practicality now? Now it's saying if you lack this incentive of walking in the light, the light that comes with Christ and His teaching about the kingdom of God, that's the way I would put it. If you lack that, guess what you are? You are the blind leading the blind. You are in spiritual blindness. You are in darkness. You do not know where you're going. Spiritually, you are without a guide. And that's why Jesus admonishes, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. But wait a minute, that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that we are sons of the light. We are sons of the day. And so there is a correspondence that we're going to see right here as we consider this idea of light and darkness, light and darkness, and regarding this idea of being either in the light or in the darkness, we're talking basic terms. We're talking about salvation. In one sense, you can say you are either in salvation or you are out of salvation. What's another way that we can put that? You are either in Christ, who is the light. Isn't that what he said? I am the light. Isn't that what John says? He says, you know, he is the The way, the truth, and the life. Not the light. The life. Same thing. The same sphere of salvation and life is in Him. Outside of that, we can say you are either in Christ, in the light, or you are outside of Christ and you are in Adam. And in Adam... It means that in him, in Adam, you are not only in the dominion of sin, the sphere of sin, but you you are partaking, we could say, in the darkness of Adam's sin, the darkness of Adam's sinful nature, the darkness of Adam's covenant breaking, the darkness of Adam's guilt and death. That's what comes from the darkness. Darkness begets darkness. When a person is in Christ, they are part of his light. Part of the light of his righteousness, the light of his love, the light of his life. There could be no greater distinction in all the world. And what Paul is telling us is this. The day of the Lord is coming. And if you're going to be ready for the day of the Lord, go back to Thessalonians. If you're going to be practically ready for the day of the Lord, you had better be found in the light, in Christ, in salvation, in the kingdom of God. And that better have very practical expressions in your life. There had better be very tangible ways that we can determine, not just in an act of self-introspection and self-examination, but those around us, we need to be able to discern who is in the light with us. Who's walking in the light? Who's not in the light? And therefore... Called us two things, so here's my two points for today, okay? Real simple. Number one, he's going to distinguish the children of God. He's going to mark them out. And number two, he's going to give us the duty of the children of God, okay? The first is this distinguishing that goes on, and the first thing that he tells us is that the children of the light are called into the light. Uh, They're not called to be light. We're going to get there, but first of all, we are called into the light. In other words, it's a sphere, Uh, It's like a realm transfer. We have been transported out of the realm of darkness into the realm of light. That is what he is concerned with. And the day of the Lord serves one great purpose, brothers and sisters. The day of the Lord serves the purpose to dispel the darkness. Turn with me to the second letter. The second letter, chapter 2. Just to see this. Verse 8. Then after the restrainer is removed the lawless one will be revealed that's the antichrist in the context who the lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by watch this the appearance of his coming epiphaneo epiphaneo is a greek word that the King James authors, and I think maybe justifiably so, means something like uh, eminent appearance, even brightness. So there is some sort of, you know, illuminating effect here, right? As Jesus comes, He returns. The day of the Lord is at hand. He breaks into the sinful world. The brightness of His appearance, His very presence and the effulgence of His glory will dispel the darkness of Antichrist and a world under the Antichrist system. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. But that's what the day of the Lord is going to do. And everyone who is not ready for the day of the Lord is going to be caught off guard. (laughs) Not because they didn't read the sign of the times. It wasn't because they weren't watching you know, uh, Jack Van Impe or Hal Lindsay or they weren't watching TBN and what the prophecy guys on the channel were saying. Guess what they're all saying all the time? Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus. It's not that people don't know Christians believe Jesus is coming again. So that they're not ready, right? There are people, there are conspiracy theorists around the world who believe. And some sort of messianic theology that Jesus will return or something like that. That does not mean that they're ready. That does not mean that they're not in darkness and that they are awake and that they are in the light. See, what is really being talked about here is that those upon whom the day of the Lord will be like a thief that overtakes you, those that will be overtaken by the day of the Lord like a thief are those who are spiritually unfit. That's what it means. And we are called into the light. And so Paul says, you brethren are not in darkness so that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light, sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. And we're going to get to all of that. If he, uh, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that not only have we been transferred out of the domain of darkness and put into the kingdom of, of Christ, the kingdom of light, but it says we share in an inheritance with all the saints in light. This light motif is just amazing in the Bible. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. It goes way back over there. Always remember, you should always bear in mind, that any sort of th- rich theology like this is always rooted in the Old Testament. It has underpinnings in the Old Testament. Now, what did I say? Isaiah 60? Yeah, Isaiah chapter 60, beginning in verse 1. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. I think this is speaking very clearly of the people of God who in Christ and in the church possess the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And what do we see today going on? But the nations are streaming in to Christ, streaming in to God's people. God's people. We are sons of light, sons of the day. We're called into the light, into His kingdom, We're called into God's moral light, into His redemptive light, into the light of His eternity and glory, even as Isaiah just pointed out. It means that we have been spiritually awakened, brothers and sisters. It means that we have been made alive. It means that we have gone from death to life, from darkness to light. But with this transfer uh, out of one state, darkness, into another, light, then comes a great responsibility. Know what it is? Sobriety. Go back and look at the text because that's what he says. He says, back in Thessalonians 5, he says here, we are not of darkness that the day would overtake us for you are all sons of light, sons of day. We're not of night. Now night becomes code For the sphere in which sin and sinners operate. Operate. Nor we are the darkness. So then, look at verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So two terms that are used right there. Alert and sober. The first word, this idea of being alert kind of the same word that's used in the Bible for watchful. It's the same word that Jesus used, Gregoreo, and I know that you just love that Greek word, but Gregoreo is the same word that Jesus used when? In the Garden of Gethsemane at night when he told his disciples, can you just pray with me for like an hour? (laughs) I've got, you know... (laughs) I've got soldiers that are on their way to arrest me and you cannot, what does he say? You could not even watch for an hour, right? And that is the same word that's being used here. You could not be alert, Jesus was saying. You were not awake. You were not watchful with me. So it speaks of a spiritual vigilance that we ought to have. And then there's another word that he uses here and that word is the word sober, napho now Napho is important because it is in a sense referring to literal sobriety meaning don't get drunk right but more more than the literal meaning this uh, this this word here is really speaking of a spiritual vigilance that that we're going to see these are both Again, metaphorical, and it goes with this whole idea of night and darkness, night and darkness, awake, asleep. Paul uses the word night twice, verse 4, verse 5. Why? Again, to emphasize that those who are spiritually asleep, spiritually ignorant, spiritually dead in sin living under the dominion of sin, and those who engage in immorality, impurity, sensuality, pursue all manner of carnal ambitions, including darkness, at night. In other words, in a hidden way. They don't want to walk in the light. But God's children are to be sober, spiritually vigilant. You know, think of a sober person in the company of drunks. Uh, Not only are you able to see the dangers around you, and you have the powers of your discernment while others don't, but you know what? When you're the only sober person in a company of drunks, you also see the stupidity of drunks. You see the folly that they're engaged in. You see their lack of discernment. You see where they don't see clearly and don't drive right. You can understand that they are inebriated and that their mental faculties have been compromised, You know, spiritually speaking, what a perfect analogy of the church. We are sober in a world that is drunk with sin. And we see the madness and folly and misery all around us. We see the maddening, the running over the cliff of hell. We see people making a mad dash to perdition. And we just sit here as sober Christians thinking, why would you perish Why would you burn? Oh, C.S. Lewis was right. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. People don't want to get out. They don't want to be saved. They don't want to be delivered. They don't want your Jesus. They don't want your salvation. They don't want your purity, your righteousness, your holiness. They want their excess, even if it costs them their soul. And then gain nothing in the end. Uh, just a, a good parallel. Look at First Peter chapter one, First Peter chapter one, beginning in verse thirteen. That's what Peter says. Just to see not only the same language, but also just the the, the 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 context of eschatology, but but also just to see that the true moral quality of sobriety that's in view here. Therefore, Peter says, First Peter one thirteen. Prepare your minds for action. So much for Christianity that is not self-conscious. You know, a lot of Christians are theologically uh, not conscious. Uh, They don't really care what they believe. All they care about is, you know, is this a nice church? Are my kids going to have fun? You know, can we do some community events? And don't bother me with all the isms and schisms, please. Right? Right? Just let me go about my merry old life and my merry old way. Just let me be just kind of the typical soccer mom in the community. And don't bother me with all this Calvinism, Arminianism stuff. It's mean-spirited anyway. (laughs) That's the way 99% of Christians think, but you do not. And that's why I'm so glad to be here. It's just maddening the, the, the fact that we check our brains at the door of the church. And he says, what? Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely. Look at that, guys. What are you banking on today? What keeps you going? What makes you tick? What gets you out of the bed in the morning? What makes you, what, what keeps you together? What makes you hold it all together instead of unraveling into depression and sanity? What, what is it? What keeps you together? It better be the hope that we have. On the grace of God, notice the eschatology, just like Thessalonians, to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, that's when your hope will be realized. As obedient children, we could say sons of light, do not be conformed to the former lusts that were yours in your ignorance. You see the component there on the mind So you have a cognitive component of what darkness means now. Darkness means that your mind is futile. Your mind is futile, darkened. Your mind is compromised. It doesn't see. It doesn't know God. You are in ignorance, spiritual ignorance. That's why ignorance in the Bible is never, ever, ever, ever a virtue. It's never a virtue to be ignorant, right? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter. Uh, 15 he says some of you have no knowledge and i say that to your shame the book of hebrews it says you should have been teachers by now chapter 5 verse 11 to chapter 6 verse 3 he says you should have been teachers by now but you need somebody to teach you all over again the basic principles of christianity and then perhaps maybe you will go on to maturity if god allows it so there's fear intermingled with that oh god don't let me don't let me remain in ignorance i want to grow in the knowledge of God. He says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior, because as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How do we do that? This moves us to the second point. Not just distinguishing between light and darkness, but but there's also a duty that is found here. There's a duty that we're going uh, to see. There's a duty in the children of God. And I say that Specifically, if you look down now at verse uh, 8, look at what he says. He says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober. There's that word again. Watch this now. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So what's the the duty? Uh, The duty is to be sober. How do you do that? You do that by putting on the armor of God. That's how it works, actually. Even exegetically, that is what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be sober. Now, how does that sobriety work out practically in our lives? It works out like this. We put on these virtues in our life. This is what we focus on. This is what we do. The word sober, coming back to that term. That word has a rich Heritage in antiquity, even outside of Scripture, outside of the Bible, in Greek antiquity, the word "sober" was actually used to speak of an athlete's ability to balance himself. It's a balancing act. Isn't life a balancing act? It's hard. You're walking through treacherous terrain, a treacherous world. You're walking through a world full of peril. I was just talking to a young child here in our church just before church, and. I was sharing the gospel with them and, and they reminded me of the story of Pilgrim's Progress and they reminded me of what Christian went through in the, the, as he tried to go to the celestial city. And they didn't tell me. I had to fill in the blanks, but I knew what they were talking about. But that's how it is. You have all these dangers, all these allurements, all these temptations, and there's just darkness pervading all around us. And it's, it takes somebody who is sound in mind, sound in judgment whose skill, whose powers of discernment, rather, are honed in. That's why Paul tells Timothy, young Pastor Timothy, be sober in all things. Tell you what, I'm sorry, but I don't like Christian drinking communities. Not into it. Thank you. I'll pass. No, it doesn't make me feel more reformed. No. I don't want to grow a beard like Spurgeon. I don't think I even could if I tried. So holding an ale in my hand does nothing for me spiritually. Matter of fact, truth be told, because I started drinking at a very young age, I'm extremely, uh, what's the word? I I know what you feel like when you're drunk and buzzed and all that, right? So I know the fact that there's no way I can drink ever again. Because I know that in the weakness of my flesh, one drink too much puts me beyond the threshold very quickly. matter of fact, I remember when I stopped drinking i 'd become a Christian, I still drank, and I knew, well, you just can 't get drunk anymore, right? I could still enjoy like a drink, yeah, sure. well, until one day, I'll never forget it, you know because I used to in my in the feudal ways inherited by my fathers as Peter says, I used to pride myself on how toler- my tolerance and how I could, in a sense, drink as many beers as I wanted, for example, and not even get drunk, right? And I remember having gone through a period of sobriety in my life, I drank one beer and I was buzzed. And let me tell you, contrary to what people are saying online, I was not buzzed to the glory of God. My powers of discernment were compromised, And I could feel the folly in my head. Maybe you don't share that experience, but that's just kind of my little jab in the ribs to the drinking reform community, whatever. Um, It's just because that's where foolish things happen. And I've seen it, guys. I've seen it. I've seen the crowds. In the church that get all hopped up on their liberty, and then they start having little side fellowships where they're all drinking ale and stuff. And you know what I've seen before? My sad experience as a pastor is that I've actually seen a group like that divulge into drunkenness, full blown drunkenness, because they could handle their alcohol. And then they prove that they couldn't. And that happens all the time. All the time. Let me move on to the next point, which is the armor that we're to put on. Notice what he says here. How do we withstand the darkness? How do we be light? How do we walk in the day, not the, di- not the night? He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, remarkably, the Apostle Paul here is actually borrowing from Isaiah. He's actually pulling from Isaiah 59, verse 7. Let me read that to you. Isaiah 59, verse 7 says, He, i.e., Yahweh, put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a mantle. That's the text he's alluding to. But what does he do with that text? He takes the principle of that Old Testament text, but now he applies it not to Yahweh anymore, but he applies it to the believer. To the believer. To, to us. And as a matter of fact, he does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6. You know that passage. That's Paul's really in-depth treatment of the armor of God. The armor of God. It's not just... To make fun Sunday school lessons for children. Uh, the armor of God. His Christ-like virtues that we are to adopt, meditate on, and, and, and to try to emulate uh, in Christ. That is what it's all about. And notice how he begins. He begins with the idea of a breastplate. He says as a breastplate, he mentions first faith. You See that? Faith. Faith is the foundation. Without faith, all the other virtues are worthless, they're empty, they're devoid, they won't help you. You don't protect your heart with faith. What does the Bible say? It is impossible to please God. Without faith, listen, Hebrews eleven six. 6, it is impossible to please God. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author says it is impossible to trust in His promises, and it is impossible to be obedient to God and to His commandments without faith, that's in 2 Corinthians 7.1, by the way. And it is impossible to enjoy God and His glory without faith. Uh, don't skip over that, that part. When I say, without faith, you cannot enjoy the glory of God, you know what that means, brothers and sisters, is that we are zapped. We are zapped of our spiritual power. Because, in the spirit of Piper's book that we're going to read, if you cannot... As Isaiah 29 tells us, if you cannot remain in awe of God, enthralled with God, if you cannot still, you guys, if God still doesn't do it for you, it doesn't do it for you anymore. A crucified Savior, a risen Savior, a redeemed sinner, a heaven and a hell, if that doesn't do it for you anymore, I don't got nothing left in the The pastoral toolbox. I can send you to counseling. We can sit and talk and all of that. But if you have stopped marveling at God, you are in big trouble. You are in big trouble spiritually. It's like I had a friend call me and say, Hey, brother, I need you to pray for me. You know, I just started seminary a couple years ago. And now... I'm learning all this theology. I know the languages. I can quote to you Greek and Hebrew and tell you all the systematic theology categories and all of that. And I am dry. I am dry as a bone. My love is way down. This is a crisis. And I agreed with them. Yeah, that's the problem. When you are drinking, imbibing all of this God talk, but it no longer moves you, then I don't know what else to do with the Bible for you. Right? And so I hope that that book we're going to go through will help us all to, by faith, keep ourselves in the love of God, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. We can't serve God. We cannot be productive for God. We cannot feast on His goodness. We cannot trust God with our lives. We cannot do great exploits for God without faith. We're in trouble. No wonder, He says, you need to put it on like armor. Every day, you got to arm yourself with faith. With faith. Do I have time? Yes, I got time. Uh, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, please turn there. Just let me read it to you. I'll read it over you and just in a sense, wash you with this to remind you of the potency of faith. And it's not salvific faith. It's not the faith of repentance to be born again. This is faith that is cultivated throughout your Christian life. How do we know that? Because that's what he's talking about. Hebrews eleven thirty two. Time would fail me. Sounds like a preacher. Gideon Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war. Putting foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release. It was the power of faith that kept them in the dungeon. It was John Bunyan in prison for thirteen years, with the keys of the prison hanging on the wall, and the and and, and, and the. Officials saying, just don't preach Christ anymore. And you can get out anytime. 13 years later, he was still there. Because he says, I'd rather preach Christ. I'd rather die than not to preach Christ. You can do it. Doesn't matter what you do to me. Faith is what kept him in that cell, nothing else. And it says, So that they might obtain to a better resurrection. By faith is how you are going to lose your life in this world. By faith is how you are going to hate your life in this world. And he says, others experienced mockings, scourgings. Yes, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in half. Sawn in two. Some people say the prophet Isaiah was cut in two with a saw. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Verse 38. Watch this, everybody. This is God's red carpet. Men of whom the world was not worthy. This is God's red carpet. Here's the... Here's where the lights shine the brightest. This is what the paparazzi should be pursuing. This is what all the cameras should be flashing. This is where we, this is our, our, our role of celebrities. Why? Because as they suffered, they were getting closer, they were approaching conformity to the cross when Isaiah was sawn in half, when Peter was crucified upside down, when Paul was thrown into prison and beheaded by Nero, they were approaching, that level of sacrifice was approaching something comparable to the cross, which is the greatest moment in redemptive history where the lights shined the brightest, even though it seemed the darkest. So much so that Jesus says the power of And the hour of this darkness is yours. That's what he told his persecutors. Enjoy the present darkness because in three days I will rise again. On the third day, you will see me come back in power and glory. How am I supposed to stop preaching? People are like, please stop preaching. (laughs) Okay, no. Gail says no. Thank you, Gail. We're supposed to have love. In our hearts, love for God, love for people, faith, love. And then the next piece of the armor, the last piece of the armor, a helmet. The head, in a combat situation, as you know, the head is where you can suffer a fatal blow. The head has to be protected. You need a good helmet. Matter of fact, the Greek word here, perikaphaleia, is the word that literally means concerning the head. That's what a helmet is. So it concerns the protection of the head. And what happens in your head, well, that's where your brains are. What do you do with your brains? That's how you think. And how you think and what you think on is everything. And so, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Set your mind on the things that are excellent. See that? Excellent. One of the greatest compliments I ever got when I was preaching. I got down a brother came up to me and he said, you know what? I was preaching Philippians. This was years ago. Chris Matthews remembers maybe. Brother came up and he said, you know what? That passage just landed on me with a fresh weight. That yeah, maybe I'm not thinking of overtly sinful, lustful things. But my mind is... Neither is my mind on what is truly excellent. You see? You see? It was not minimalistic Christianity. It didn't do it for him. He needed maximalistic Christianity. He knew he was missing something by just not doing, you know, bad things with his mind. It was not enough. He needed to pursue excellence. He needed to set his mind on heavenly things in order to truly be protecting the mind, protecting the head. And what's the protection all about? Well, he says, the helmet comprises of the hope of salvation. Don't forget your hope, brothers and sisters. This world is geared to deflate your hope. It is geared to remove your hope, deflate your hope. It's geared to, to, to trivialize your hope. It's geared to punt your hope so far down the field, you don't think it's even relevant where you're at. It's geared to make your hope look dim and small and trivial and religious and sort of pie-in-the-sky hope. That is Satan speaking. That's a dart that's penetrating the helmet, and you need to get it off. And you need to go back to, no, 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 the the hope is the hope of heaven, the hope of resurrection. It is the hope of vindication. It is the hope of triumph. It is the hope of final victory over sin. That is our hope. Amen? Okay, now I'll be quiet. Let's pray. Oh God, we cry out, Lord, for a measure of grace that enables us to hope, to love. We pray for a measure of grace as the disciples prayed. A measure of grace that says, we do believe, Lord, but help our unbelief because our unbelief so quickly, so often, so easily just kicks the legs right from under us. And so we ask, Lord, we are not, we haven't obtained, we're not too proud to beg. Lord, we beg you, increase our faith. Father, I want to pray a special prayer today. My fear is that for many in this church, There's so little transformation because there's so little glorying and marveling at who you are. There's so little hope. The hope is so small. It's so weak. The faith is flickering. And would you, oh God, where genuine oil has been deposited into the lamp, would you... Fan into flame for any of us, all of us, who are in the throes of apathy, in the throes of apathy, who are in the throes of lukewarm Christianity that does not enable us to do anything radical, anything risky for God, anything sacrificial, Anything that will cost us, oh God, help us not to settle for that minimalistic slogan in our life that focuses more on what we don't do rather than what is available to us to do, what is available for us in Christ. Oh Lord, would you reveal yourself to us in such a way that you would be supreme that you would be the all-satisfying Christ. Give us a vision of you, O God, so that we will long for that beatific vision that we talked about, that brothers shared so wonderfully about in Sunday school, that beatific vision that we will hunger for righteousness and be satisfied, and that the pure in heart will see God,